Hey humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 292, and I had a conversation with Ken Levine. He <laughs> he is a busy guy, uh, Emmy Award winning, many times Emmy Award nominated, uh, Writers Guild of America Award winning, also nominated for a lot. He has written for some of the most beloved television shows that have ever existed, including MASH, Cheers, Frasier, The Simpsons, Wings, Everybody Loves Raymond, Becker, Dharma and Greg, and with his writing partner, David Isaacs, he created the series Almost Perfect. He was a co-writer of feature films Volunteers, Mannequin 2. He was also a Major League Baseball announcer and also a disc jockey. He's got a podcast called Hollywood and Levine. He has a blog as well. I mean, he does so many things. Uh, Playwright, tons of plays, which, by the way, you can uh, teach them or perform them. They're online, available at KenLevinePlays.com. And, of course, on the links page, I have all that stuff. But anyway, really interesting guy, funny guy. I was obsessed with M.A.S.H., and Cheers and Frasier growing up. So uh, I was really excited to talk to Ken. During the pandemic, I rewatched every episode of Cheers. And uh, I think I might go find all of the MASH episodes, actually, because that would be a fun memory lane. I remember loving Dharma and Greg as well. So, uh, <laughs> so wild. I've said it before and I'll say it again. It's surreal for me on this show that I get to speak with now people whom I grew up admiring or uh, loving their work, their bodies of work without really understanding who did it. You know, when you're young and, and you get into something, the person that did it isn't maybe as necessarily as interesting to you as just the thing itself. And then as an adult, you want to know, oh, who created that? Who was the artist or the writer or the um, creator behind the thing? So looking past the... Uh, the curtain, if you will. Anyway, it was really a cool conversation. I had a good time. <laughs> we we kind of went all over the map, but I really enjoyed it. I think I'm going to take two weeks off. So for those of you who have been with this show forever, uh, it's almost six years old now, and I've never taken a day off. Uh, there has been a show every week since its inception, and I was thinking about it today and I mentioned it to my best friend Ellen and she said, you know what, you should. It's okay. Take take a couple weeks and just enjoy the rest of December. So we're going to come back unless I get a wild hair and, and just say, you know what, I'm going to put out an episode anyway. But for right now, I'm thinking, nope, I'm going to come back on the 6th of January with a brand new episode. I've got some really incredible shows coming up, uh, some wild conversations that I can't wait for you to hear. So yeah, definitely that. But in the meantime, if you're new to the show or maybe came in a couple years ago or whatever, like I said, it's been going on for a long time. And I just wanted to mention a couple past episodes out of, you know, 292. There's a lot to go through, but uh, episode 51 with Katie Troyer. She's an Amish little person. I loved that episode. Episode 25 with Brock Hayhoe, who most of you would know as Brooklyn Heights. And 
that was a great conversation. Drag queen extraordinaire and also on RuPaul's Drag Race. Uh, Holly Dexter, episode 166. Oh my gosh, her story is nuts and it's edge of the seat listening for sure. It's hard to believe one person can go through so many things. And she's the author of, of several books, including Fire Season. Uh, episode 103, uh, Benjamin, also known as Griffin, he's a gay porn star. That was a fascinating episode. And then episode 218, Gary Donzig. Uh, really, I enjoyed that conversation so much, the philosophy of it. He was diagnosed with cancer and then said, hey, I think y'all diagnosed me wrong and then did his own deep dive and figured out that they had misdiagnosed and he actually had a different cancer than they thought he had. Really fascinating conversation. We talk about religion and and philosophy and all that stuff. And, uh, you know, just go through, check out some of the older episodes there's really some doozies on there, and then I won't feel guilty for not having a new show come out in the next two weeks. <laughs> I feel real guilt about that, I gotta tell you. Anyway, usual stuff, uh, Hey Human Podcast social media is on Facebook and Instagram. You can find my personal social media, Susan Ruthism, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. You can email me, Susan, at heyhumanpodcast.com. If you're into music, go find my music on Spotify or Amazon Music or iTunes under Susan Ruth. You can go to susanruth.com and sign up for the mailing list and check out all the other things I do besides the podcast, art and music and acting things and all that stuff. I mentioned earlier the links page. The links page is fat with ideas and thoughts and things and books and articles and all sorts of stuff. Every episode has its own links section on the links page. I do the deep dive so you don't have to. And so definitely go check that out too. If you feel like contributing to this ad-free podcast, go to the contribute page there on heyhumanpodcast.com and it really helps the show and I appreciate it rate and review Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And I think that's about it. Oh, I got my booster today. Very exciting. My arm hurts, uh, but otherwise I feel fine. And got the Moderna and excited about that. So that's what I got. I hope you have very happy holidays, whatever you decide to do or not do for that matter. And if you can hear my voice, know that you are loved and appreciated and, you know, stay well and be safe out there. Be kind to each other. And thanks for listening. I really appreciate it. Okay, here we go. Ken Levine, welcome to Hey Human. Hey, thank you very much for having me. Absolutely. And thank you. Shout out to Russ Woody, who uh, got us connected. Russ is my new booking agent. <laughs> <laughs> he Very funny me. man. He is oh, he's hysterical. He adores you and I learned about I don't know you. Why. I, don't... <laughs> I learned about you uh, so very long. I met Russ about 2 years ago, I, I guess now, and I have heard about you so much that he really really does. He thinks you're the cat's meow as they say. Well, he's funnier than me and he prints better. So <laughs> the first thing I noticed when doing some research about you is you're incredibly prolific. Is you're a nonstop 
go, go, go between books and plays and the television writing, the blog. You've been a, I mean, I'm telling you your life, but you've been a radio announcer. You've been a DJ. I mean, this, you, you wear, you've worn a lot of hats. You wear a lot of hats. I, you know, I'm terrible in sports. Okay. So it's like, I don't golf. I don't play tennis. Um, it's kind of what I do to, to stay active. And, uh, and I'm a firm believer that you make your own momentum. And so things happen because you're working on other things. And sometimes they lead to unexpected things. Um, I, in my blog, I did a number of posts about Neil Simon and how much I admired Neil Simon. And I got a call from Turner Classic Movies. This was a few years ago. And they said, we're going to do a Friday night spotlight on Neil Simon movies. Would you host it? So we know you've had some radio and TV background. And I said, yeah, sure. So they flew me back to Atlanta and I hosted this whole uh, series on, on Turner Classic Movies. And you go like, you know, when would I ever host movies on Turner Classics? But, you know, it, it stemmed from the blog. So you never know where these things might lead. And the idea that you come to every situation mostly prepared for when the opportunity arises. Yeah, right? hopefully. You yeah. know, the other thing I find is by working on different projects, um, it, it kind of keeps you young and you're always trying to reinvent yourself. So you're always trying to really learn, okay, how do I become the best possible director? How do I become the best possible playwright? Uh, I don't necessarily get there, but, um, it's, it's, it's good. It's, it's like, a, it's a good challenge and, uh, and it, keeps you young in a way because you're always learning and you're always trying to um, develop new skills. Did you, know, you grow when you up get in my a... age 40? Uh, you, you have to start thinking about things like that. Yes. It's important to develop strong skills at 40. I agree. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Everything okay, before that. All right. Is... 45. You got me. <laughs> Everything before that's a wash. Where, yeah. Did you grow up in a in a creative family? Did you have a lot of support in that realm? I did have mostly support in my family. Um, I think, and this may just be me projecting on them, but uh, they they thought I was a little weird. <laughs> you know, what eight year old wants to be a baseball announcer, not player? Um, and I would like sit in my room and draw cartoons and listen to music and want to be a disc jockey and that type of thing. And, uh, I was really into radio and I would collect tapes of different disc jockeys around the country and, you know, you know, nerd stuff like serious nerd stuff. Uh, but back in those days, nerd stuff was not fashionable, right? I was a little weird, but they they were supportive. They um, they, they never said, you know, throw those 
throw those tapes away. You need to be a doctor. So they they never did that. And, you know, I grew up in a, in a very loving family. Um, so for the most part, yes, they were supportive and tolerant. Are you the youngest child? No, I have oh. a younger brother. And okay. he was the kind, he played high school football. How many Jews play high school football? You know, so he only was, Brennan Fraser. I saw that movie. <laughs> he was the the regular kid playing little league and doing all that stuff. And like I said, I would sit in the stands and do play by play to myself. Sandy Koufax. I was trying to think of another. Isn't he Jewish? Yeah. yeah. No, there there's some Jewish ball players. Yeah. Uh, Hank Greenberg and. Uh, Gabe Kapler, who's now the manager of the Giants, um, uh, Kevin Euclid. There, there are a number of of Jews in in baseball. Not a large number, but uh, nonetheless. There's your next book, Jews in Baseball, a memoir. It's a very small book. <laughs> when you got, what did you study in college? What was your major? Psychology, huh? which helped. I went to UCLA and the psychology allows me to write Frazier and Lilith's psychobabble. Yes. But, you know, I got into college and I wanted to be in radio and television. And my father said, you know, if you get a job, you're going to learn all of that. You're at a university, take advantage of it and take an academic course load take classes that you wouldn't otherwise take. So I thought, well, I'm interested in people. So I became a a psychology major. And two years into the program, I still thought, yeah, I'd kind of like to be a television major. And I went to the TV department and I said, how do I apply? They said, well, you fill out this form and you give us a tape of something that you've done. And I thought, wait, aren't you supposed to teach me how to do a tape? (laughs) What do I need you if I already have a tape and know how to do it? So I did not make a tape. I took a couple of TV classes at UCLA, but I, I stayed in psychology. I got my degree in psychology. I think it has likely served you well, considering the types of shows you've written for MASH. I think of MASH to me, that show Aside from the the obvious of the Korean War and what was going on with that, I and mean, the show lasted longer than the conflict. Yeah, uh, like three and a half times. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The 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 deep dives of the human psyche. I mean, even in the finale, of course, when Hawkeye loses his shit. But um, the you wrote one of the ones that I, I noticed you wrote was the one from the perspective um, of the soldier who goes through the mass unit. Right. Point. You, did you win? You won an Emmy for that one, right? No, we were nominated for Nominate. an Emmy. Yeah, okay. we lost. What really pissed me off is that our director, Charles Dubin, was nominated and lost. And that was, was really a crime because he did an amazing job. Uh, for your listeners who are not familiar with the episode, it was all seen through the eyes of a patient. And you start out and he's on the front line and he gets injured and you see him in the helicopter landing uh, at MASH. And then 
being taken to OR and post-op and everything else. And you see the camp through his eyes. But those were before the days of steady cams and small cameras. So he had this giant bulky camera that he had to strap onto things and put in weird places. And he only had a certain amount of time to do it. And it was a phenomenal job. And, and you know, I was pissed, obviously, that we lost the Emmy, but I was really pissed that yeah. he did because no one deserved an Emmy more than Charles Dubin for that episode. Yeah, it's really something and ahead of its time, really, I think, too. Well, we wanted to, to find ways of shaking up the format. And this had been established a couple of years before us, an episode Larry Gelbart and Gene Reynolds conceived called The Interview, which basically you were watching a half hour television interview that a documentary and it was all in black and white. And there was uh, a journalist who was interviewing them, that type of thing. And so we wanted to find a way of shaking up the format. And I came up with this idea and I went to our executive producer uh, at the time, Bert Metcalf, and I said, this is either going to be the best or worst episode of the year. It's either going to really work or it's just going to be awful. But at the time, we were on Monday nights and the Oscars were on Monday nights. Mm. So once a year, we knew we were up against the Oscars. So we always knew, okay, we have one bad show that we can do and we'll just save it as our Oscar show because <laughs> we know we're going to get killed that night. And no one will see it. So we said, look, worst comes to worst, it'll be our Oscar show. But it came out great and it aired actually in sweeps in November. We didn't have to hold it back. We found another show. Yeah, that was a great episode. You, as a writer, must have been thrilled to have actors who were so stunningly great oh, at absolutely. And, you know, they're doing something in that episode that they never, ever do. And that is look directly into the camera. Yeah, breaking fourth wall. It's yeah. meta. It's meta breaking fourth wall, but it's still breaking fourth wall. Well, not only that, but you know, actors really work off of other actors and being able to relate to other actors. So even if there's like a close-up of Hawkeye and he's talking to Potter, well, if it's the close-up of of Alan, Harry is standing right by the camera and he's feeding him lines so that they can have this connection. Well, now the actors have to stare into a camera lens and pretend that that's a flesh and blood person. Um, that was very difficult. We, we were very fortunate when we came up with the idea, we had heard that there was a, a movie done like in the 40s, I think, called Lady in the Lake with Robert Montgomery, and it was a Philip Marlowe noir type movie, but it was all done point of view. 
So we got a copy of the movie and we screened it. And what we found was when the other actors were talking to him, they were fine. But when he was talking to the other actors, now you're just watching somebody staring into a camera awkwardly. It was just really weird. So we got the idea, okay, let's give our patient a throat injury so he can't talk. So all of the talking is coming from our people. And finally, when he says a couple of words at the very end, that they have a real impact. But we never would have come across that had we not seen that movie. We learned from Robert Montgomery's mistakes. There's a lot in in the years that you were on that show that you were able to dig out, especially the psychology of humanity um, or lack thereof. And did you have moments in the writers' rooms and things where you thought, "Oh, I don't know if the world is ready for this yet"? Because I mean, it really—it's the show is what? How old is it now? Forty years old? No, it's Cheers is forty years old. It's yeah, old. Yeah, no, it? it's uh, hundred and twelve. It's well, it's. <laughs> Yeah, it's like 50 years old, yeah. which is kind of amazing considering I'm 45. Yeah, it's just right. Well, yeah. time, time machines, you know, good time machine. Well, I I will say that a lot of the stuff we got was from research where we would interview doctors and corpsmen and nurses and patients and people who served in Korea. And we had tons and tons of this information, which we would turn into stories. And one of the stories that we came across was the story where a mother had to kill her baby to keep it quiet so that the people in her village was not discovered. And Alan wanted to do that story. This was year seven. And David and I said, no, no, that just, it crosses a line. We, we don't want to do that story. By the time they did the last episode, we had left. Um, and I guess he always wanted to do the story. I still hate the story. And I still think it was a mistake. To, to do it was that a, it was an intense moment when he realizes he's with Sydney and he realizes you know the chicken was not a chicken right let that be a lesson to you the chicken is seldom the chicken <laughs> <laughs> that's why we listen to podcasts that's right that's your next memoir the chicken is never the chicken <laughs> uh, let's segue into cheers did that was an incredible show. So, you know, during the quarantine, I rewatched every episode. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Fantastic. What a ride that show was. It was great. And my partner and I were on it for nine of the 11 years. And we wrote 40 episodes. We wrote more episodes than anybody. Wow. It's a record that will never be broken since they're not making any more cheers. Well, what's interesting too, I was thinking about this this morning, the shows that you were a part of, 
I don't know that they make shows like that really anymore anyway. And maybe on the streaming, there's, there's stuff that's intense or whatever, but there's the charm and the, the depth and the humanity that was covered in these shows is really something. Well, I, I think, look, times change and sensibilities change, but you're right. I think that there was a humanity that was at the core of, of all of the shows that we wrote. And what I see now is shows that are a lot more mean spirited. You know, you're, you're laughing or you're amused by horrible people doing horrible things and, you know, shows like white Lotus, you know, nine perfect strangers or whatever. Um, and uh, like I said, it's just, you know, society changes and, um, sensibilities change, but, um, I, I sort of miss it. Uh, you know, there are shows I watch now that I like a lot. You know, I, I really like Ted Lasso. I really like hacks. Um, but they're not funny. They're not really funny. They don't really make me laugh. And I always had the feeling with Cheers and with Frasier that there was kind of a, a contract with the audience that even if this is not one of our best episodes, you will laugh out loud five times. Okay, there will be five great jokes that you will laugh out loud at. And then most of the episodes will be good and you'll really be involved in the story and there'll be way more than five laughs or whatever. But at least there was sort of the understanding that if you watch this show, at least you're going to laugh. Yeah. And, and I don't see that today with shows, you know, shows that are comedies um, might have a couple of amusing wry lines, that type of thing. But, you know, it's not like, you know, when you watched um, Seinfeld, you watch Seinfeld to laugh, you know, and um, I, like I, I think Friends is is a, a great show and I think will probably be around for 50 more years because mm. I think each new generation will find it. Friends is very funny. Yeah. Friends is very funny. And I just don't see that in, in shows today. And, and I want to laugh. I, I please somebody, <laughs> somebody do a show that's really funny again. What about you? <laughs> um, well, like I said, I'm 45 and uh, the TV industry uh, only wants writers who are 44 and younger. Yeah, so, uh, which is a real so shame. I'm, because writing, I'm writing plays. Yeah. And, and that's been very gratifying mm. to have a play and have an audience laugh for 90 minutes and hold their attention 
you know, I mean, it's I'm not being seen by 30 million people anymore, but uh, it's very satisfying to be in an audience and actually hear the stuff get laughs. So yeah, I'm still around and I'm I'm still you know writing. Um, knowing but, that, knowing that there's an audience now that has a different mentality that does come to the table um, with these different ideas of what's funny even, or whether or not they even want to laugh. Um, how do you win them over? Where, do you think about that, about pulling them in without them realizing it so that then when they do get the laugh, they're like, oh gosh, here's a feeling I'm not used to and I like it. And now I'm in for the whole ride. I think that comes from creating characters and situations that get the audience to care. Okay, because I want I want my viewer or audience member, whoever it might be, to be invested in the characters and what they're going through. And if they care, then then you can make them laugh. But to me, that's that's the important thing is finding characters that that you like. And and that's where today, like I say, things are a, a little bit different because today you can start with a horrible, unlikable character doing terrible things. And, you know, that that seems to work. And I'm not saying that all characters have to be nice and, and lovely. I mean, some of the best characters are the ones who are who are villains or or horrible um you get comedy out of flaws so well cheers was a cast of narcissist characters right exactly, they exactly. all were horrible <laughs> you know and if you have people who are um you know vain you know or overly competitive or basically have a disconnect with who they are and, you know, how the world sees them. Uh, you're going to get a lot more comedy than you can out of Father Mulcahy, who's basically just this really nice guy. And you're right. In, in Cheers, there was certainly a, a certain amount of conflict and uh, culture clash, and that type of thing. And you were able to get uh, you get a lot of conflict, but again, the core of Cheers was that they were essentially a family. That it's some place that you could go to feel like you belong, and it's some place that you know, even though Carla was taking shots at you, it's like you know your sister taking shots at you. You know, you weren't horribly offended and, and that type of thing. So um, there, there still was this, you know, feeling of, of camaraderie. Um, it's interesting, the perception and, you know, how, how people see a, a show. Maybe it's year seven or eight or nine there was like a subplot going 
throughout the season of Sam trying to get Rebecca into bed. And along the way, you know, I mean, he did some just like awful things, you know, in the Me Too era, he'd probably be in jail for some of the things he tried to pull. And we took research, NBC did research on the show that year. Everybody loved Sam because they saw Sam as a father figure to everyone in the bar. And we're going, what show are you watching? <laughs> Maybe Lecherous Uncle. <laughs> what show are you watching? Because this guy was doing everything short of stalking. This guy was doing everything short of exposing himself, you know, and the audience like oh, oh, Sam's our Sam's our father figure. Yeah. yeah, I mean, they had years falling in love with everyone on that show. Could you tell us somewhere along the, the, the at what point do you see the characters and know that something like Frazier's character is then going to be able to stand on its own and be his own show? Well, interestingly, with Kelsey. Kelsey was only supposed to be in like three episodes. He was introduced as like a current boyfriend for Diane, the beginning of season three. And we saw like early on, just like that first and second week, we said, you know, this guy has got a real presence and adds a, a real interesting dynamic. Uh, you know, let's not get rid of him. And so Frazier wound up a regular at the bar and you look for characters that, that you feel have enough gravitas that they can carry their own show. And it's tough when you have supporting characters because some can and some can't. Some are basically just really good supporting characters, second bananas. And uh, like another example is Matt LeBlanc, when they spun him off from Friends. Eh. <laughs> Matt LeBlanc couldn't carry a show by himself. Um, Although I did but, love the show he was on with the English. Uh, uh, yeah, episodes, episodes, but it wasn't, it, it wasn't, he wasn't that, the star. It wasn't the character yeah. from yeah, Friends. Yeah. yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay. Yeah. Uh, he was playing a different, a different thing. Yeah. Um, so Frazier had enough of that gravitas. And it was a character who had a, has a drive and was was very funny. And you figure this guy could carry a show. Uh, NBC for years kept coming after us to do a spinoff of Norm and Cliff. And we just like, no, one is this complete idiot. And, and the other has no wants. The other is just content to just sit at a bar all day. How do you build a show around these two people? Yeah. So we didn't. Yeah. And then Frazier ended up with such an incredible cast as well. Supporting mm -hmm. cast. Yeah. Even the dog had charisma. 
<laughs> I was a very good dog and uh, had a had a wonderful trainer. She was so loving with that dog. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. We'd ask her. We'd say, "Ken Moose was the dog's real name." Um, you know, can Moose grab this uh, ball of yarn and take it there? And she says, yeah, you could do that. You know, can Moose uh, make dinner? To No, no. Moose can't cook. Okay. <laughs> can you do a martini straight up? That's what we need. <laughs> uh, let's talk about your writing partner, David Isaac. So when when did you two meet? How did that come to be? We met in 1973 when we were both in the same Army Reserve unit. I was two and a half years old at the time. And um, David was reading a book on George S. Kaufman, playwright, who is one of my idols. First of all, just to see a soldier reading a book is rather unusual. At the time, I was a top 40 disc jockey. And David was working at ABC in Hollywood in a long since obsolete department called film shipping, where they would literally ship copies of shows to outposts that had trouble getting the, um, the satellite. Um, and um, so we, we were talking, we both kind of had this desire to, to write. And at the time I was working in San Bernardino as a disc jockey and we were in the army reserves and you have to go to summer camp, active duty two weeks every year. So when our two weeks were up, I went back to, to uh, San Bernardino, quickly got fired moved back to my parents' house in the marina while I sent out tapes trying to get another job where they could fire me. And I called David and said, hey, you want to talk about maybe writing something together? And we got together and um, decided, okay, let's be a partnership. Neither one of us had written anything. Neither one of us knew anything about it. We thought, all right, well, let's write a pilot about two people in college because that was our total life experience. <laughs> you know, when you're two and a half years old, you don't have much yeah. life experience. Although impressive, you were in college at two and a half. I, yeah, I, I was in college at one. Yeah, so, clearly a genius. Uh, <laughs> so uh, I went to a bookstore in Hollywood that had scripts on a remainder table. The way most bookstores, remember bookstores used to have remainder tables with books for a buck and they had TV scripts and I bought an odd couple TV script and uh, that's the format. Like, oh, wow, you uh, interior Madison apartment day and they double space this and this is what the format looks like. We didn't even know that. So we wrote our pilot. I think it would have cost $100 million in 1973 to produce. We had all kinds of big explosions and, and stuff. Needless to say, it uh, didn't get made, but we had a good time writing it. 
And uh, through uh, a friend, I, I met a writer who was on The Odd Couple. And I asked him, how do you break in? He said, you have to have a script from an existing show. So David and I really admired the Mary Tyler Moore show. And uh, to learn how to write the Mary Tyler Moore show, we would go to his apartment every Saturday night because it was on CBS Saturday night at nine o'clock. This was before VCRs. So we would watch the show live and we would hold up a microphone to the speaker and we would do an audio recording of it. Then we would go back and write an outline based on the show. And we did that week after week after week until we started seeing patterns. We started figuring out, oh, they do two stories. And usually the second story is this. And Mary is always involved in the A story and peripherally in the B story. And this is how many scenes they do usually in the first act and how many scenes they do in the second act. And if they're not in her apartment or in a WJM, there's usually only one other set. Okay, they'll go to a bar or they'll go to Lou's house or something like that. There's only one of those. So, you know, we can't have them going to four different places. And so we figured all of this out and we wrote our next script was the Mary Tyler Moore uh, show. And it got rejected by Mary Tyler Moore. And we also wrote a Rhoda. But the story editor of the Jeffersons uh, read our Mary Tyler Moore show and he really liked it and invited us to come in pitch to Jefferson's. And we did, and they liked one of our ideas and bought it. And that's how we got a Jefferson's assignment. And that's how we, we broke in. Wow. That must feel like a lifetime ago and just yesterday all at the same time. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It was 1975. Yeah. Yeah. And that too was the kind of show that, broke so many boundaries and and really woke people up i'd like to think yeah and we were on it very early on it started as a mid-season replacement mm. and then got picked up for a full season and we wrote during its first full season so we did that then we bounced around we did episodes of joe and sons a show that was on CBS for like 11 minutes. Um, we, we did some stories for uh, Barney Miller mm. and, um, and then we got MASH. And, uh, and that really was the, the launch pad to our career. We got a MASH assignment and we did a, a very good job on that script. That script became like a golden ticket for us. MASH kept giving us more scripts to write. We would send, our agent would send that off to other shows. And we got uh, an episode of the Tony Randall show, which was at MTM, which at the time was like Camelot. They had Mary Tyler Moore show, Bob Newhart show, 
Tony Randall show, Rhoda, Phyllis. Um, that was, like I said, Camelot. And um, so we wrote, for that show, we wrote an episode and they liked it well enough to put us on staff. So we were on staff of the Tony Randall show. And then the next year we were offered staff on MASH. And due to, you know, fortunate circumstances where the people above us left in the middle of the season and David and I are like, literally like we're 26 years old and we're the head writers of MASH. That's bonkers. Yeah. Insane. Back in a day when there was no network interference, you know, there was the, the showrunner, uh, our executive producer, Burt Metcalf, but he wasn't a writer. And, you know, he handled the directing and casting and editing and post-production and all that stuff. We just focused on the writing. And we, uh, you know, we didn't do that badly a job. They're still running those shows. Yeah, yes, they even are. without all the interference. <clears throat> Along the way, especially in that era, did you, and these are shows that are male-centric, you know, I mean, obviously in MASH, you had hot, hot lips and then the occasional hot nurse that would come along and things. But right. did you have make a conscious effort of of trying to, to tell stories that also empowered women? Because even the industry itself was very male-dominant. Did you get it pushed back from that? Because... There were a few episodes of MASH. I remember where I was like, wow, you know, Hot Lips, she's such a strong, powerful woman. She's got this reserved wall that she breaks through once in a while. At first, she was sort of more of a foil. And then, you know, with Hot Lips, we really saw an opportunity because at that time, there really weren't that many strong women on, on television. And you figure, look, a woman who basically volunteers and joins the army and is on the front lines and in a mass unit, uh, it certainly makes sense. And it's certainly very organic that, that she would be a strong woman, even in 1952. Mm -hmm. So uh, we really leaned into that. And Loretta is like such a good actress that you know, you could pretty much play all kinds of emotions with her. You know, and the problem with a strong character, a strong woman character, certainly is that, well, she's going to come off too strident hmm. and the audience is not going to like her. But she was, again, such a good actress and gave such depth to that character that you saw the vulnerability underneath and there were times when there were cracks in the armor and she was willing to, to cry and willing to be vulnerable. So we basically could go as far as we wanted to with, uh, with her because we had such a good actress that we knew could pull it off. Mm -hmm. She's a phenomenal actress. That show is just, if, for those of you listening, if you haven't watched MASH, even though it was from so long ago, it's an extraordinary television program, really. 
truly extraordinary. Um, and the movie is fun too, but that's a whole other ball of wax. <laughs> <laughs> Sort of a National Lampoon's version of the show. Um, who produced that? The original was that. It was 20th Century Fox, and Ring Lardner Jr. wrote it. It's from a novel, and Robert Altman directed it. Altman, that's right. And yeah. Robert Altman pretty much had this vision of uh, of doing this very subversive movie in a very unique style at the time, which was very conversational and people talking over each other. And uh, it was, it was pretty groundbreaking mm. for its time. And the interesting thing to me about the movie, one of the best things to come out of that movie was the theme song, mm. the iconic theme song. Mm-hmm. And it was written, the music was written by Johnny Mandel. And Altman wanted lyrics, but he wanted the lyrics to be basically crass and stupid. So he had his like 15 year old son write the lyrics. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, if you write the lyrics to the song, then you're one of the songwriters. And in terms of um, royalties and that type of thing, um, you know, we have never on MASH ever used the lyrics, ever. But Altman's son still gets a royalty. And Altman's son has probably made 15, 20 million dollars over the last 50 years. Uh, his son has made 12,000 times the amount that his father made on the movie. Yeah, I, I, I sang that song in my seventh grade talent show. So I probably. How'd you do? Did you win? I, I think I it, well, it wasn't a it wasn't a win kind of situation. It was a showcasey kind of situation. But um, in retrospect, it's a pretty dark song to be singing to seventh graders. <laughs> and I probably Did you owe him an American Idol. Did you? Yeah, right. I probably owe him a royalty check somewhere along uh, the way too. Uh, Simon Cowell gave yeah. you a thumbs up. Good. God. Oh man. Uh, of your babies that you've uh, created or, you know, the, your character, all these things that you've done, is there still something that you wish you could go back and, and tweak or rewrite a little bit or something you would change in these characters? I would not so much the characters, but I would go back uh, mash. I, I would like, like one day more on each script that I think, oh, I, I watch them and I go, I could do that artfully. I could do that a little better. There's a funnier joke here, that type of thing. Uh, yeah, I, I would say for most of the episodes of MASH, I would um, would like to go back. Ironically, not so with Cheers. Not so with Cheers. Cheers, it's like, I, okay, you know, 
done out there go so um but but mash i mean mash was such a unique show and and i was only two and a half um, <laughs> but looking back uh there are things that bother me now i'm sure they don't bother the viewers right but little things that bother me where i i just think okay if if i had that outline and david and i were writing that script today it would be 10% better is there an episode in any of these shows that you've done uh that you had to really fight for where you got pushed back uh two um point of view it took it took two seasons to talk Bert into letting us do that, and on uh, Cheers, the first season, we did a show called Boys in the Bar, where Sam's roommate, when he was playing for the Red Sox, wrote a book and came out as gay, and for Sam to support him there was concern that the bar was going to become a gay bar. And that was a pretty risky show. And it was our first season. That was a pretty risky show. And, and I'm, I'm very proud of that. Interestingly, again, times change and, you know, we've gotten pushback recently from the LGBT community that it's insensitive and they should pull it. And the fact of the matter is when that show aired, we won the Writers Guild Award for it. We were nominated for an Emmy and we won the uh, GLAAD Award by the gay community. So the gay community at the time thought it was the best script. That is the problem with uh, trying to police eras because firstly it robs it robs us of seeing the progress and where things were versus where things are mm -hmm. and how do you hold something from 30 years ago up against right now it's ridiculous right and it's like what they they should have known better 50 years ago right that was you know, that, that was society. Societies change and, and evolve. Um, and yeah, behavior that was acceptable, you know, uh, 1960, look at Mad Men, you know, right. and, and the way that women were treated. Um, it was terrible, but if you're showing 1960s advertising agencies, that was the culture that was that was the dynamic yeah and to do it otherwise i mean mash to be honest um i think we we kind of blurred the lines as the series evolved um i think they got a lot more sensitive by the end of the series than the culture was. You know, the show began reflecting Alan and his sense sensibility. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
which was. Alan was the first woke human. Kind of. Yeah. yeah. Kind of. For sure. Um, so it kind of blurred that. I mean, look, the hairstyles, you know, by the end, no one had yeah. longer hair. Um, yeah. Well, it's know, interesting. Loretta you... was wearing these like mash custom t-shirts and things like like there was no such thing yeah <laughs> i i owned one of those t-shirts by the way when i was okay. in junior high i mean i was a cool kid <laughs> I, had I, just, a, I had a mash t-shirt that um that they made for everyone in the crew saying something like mash the happiest crew on television whatever and I wore that shirt for a while, and uh, and my daughter now still wears that shirt. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Just steal your father. When I went to college, I stole my father's Levi's. I still have them, uh, so I get that <laughs> that bond between daughter and father's clothing. <laughs> when did you decide to start a podcast, Hollywood and Levi? Uh, I started about five years ago. I've been in broadcasting pretty much my whole life. I was a disc jockey, talk show host, major league baseball announcer. So I have done a lot of radio and I always wanted to do a podcast, but I am technically challenged, <laughs> so to speak. And, uh, and this company came to me and said, you do the the podcast and we'll put it up and we'll do all of that. And we'll look for advertising and split the advertising with you. So I said, uh, okay, let's do it. And uh, they even offered to do the editing for me. But again, my radio background, I'm used to production and editing and, you know, I can do all of that myself. So I started it, like I said, about five years ago, and I would say maybe 50, 60 percent of the time it's interviews with people that um, that are interesting. I try to get some different people that you don't ordinarily get on podcasts, uh, writers who you may have heard their names for years, but you don't know who they are. Um, Jim Burroughs, I got, uh, you know, famous director. Uh, I've gotten women directors um, from my sports background. Um, I've got uh, Al Michaels and Joe Buck each did, uh, did my podcast. I've had a number of actors, um, George Went and Perry Gilpin and Nancy Travis and Ann Jillian. Um, I've had singers and stand-up comedians and warm-up guys and casting directors and network executives and, uh, you know, as many different people that I can find who, who are interesting. Um, and then the other time I just tell war stories you know crap like I'm telling you <laughs> so I'm like at about episode 
245 or so. Uh, but I, I enjoy it and it is it has built a following. Mm. Um, I have sponsors from time to time. So I was like, well, okay. <laughs> That's awesome. Some somebody must be listening. It's a lot of work having a podcast. It is. It yeah. is. You know, people go, oh no, it'd be fun. I could just do my own podcast. It's easy. All you got to do, you got a microphone and you're up and running and you got a podcast. Like, well, no. Uh, if if you want a good podcast, it takes a lot of time and effort and thought and post-production. Um, one of the podcasts that I did, I, I, the one I'm probably most proudest of, uh, the five years uh, I, along with uh, another friend, we're in an improv workshop together, and we did a simulated bad podcast, <laughs> doing all of the things that are annoying in podcasts. And we had leaf blowers and things not edited out and uh and it's really a a very funny episode and and i've had like a couple of uh teachers who teach podcasting actually they teach podcasting now um but they use that episode as oh that's hilarious i love that what not to do (laughs) it's called the world's worst podcast i think I'm not going to deny it. It's it's earlier this year. Yeah, it's it's earlier this year. Um, And the person I did it with, Aoife Cardi, was was very funny. And we just just riffed. You know, you get two co-hosts and they sit there and they just bullshit for 15 minutes. And like, no one is interested in this. This (laughs) This is just nonsense. And they'll have a topic for their blog, but they never get to it. Or they'll do you know, trivia questions and never get the answer, um, go off on horrible tangents. <laughs> so, did, uh, speaking so of blogs, just, what did, did your blog beget your podcast or the other way around? Well, I've had my blog for almost 16 years. Oh, okay. Yeah. Since you were four. Since I was, since I was a zygote. Yeah. <laughs> I was in the womb. I, I, <laughs> yeah. I did my first podcast. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> did uh, I? I read online that you got into some sort of a battle with Roseanne in your blog, and I thought, yeah. "Oh wow, he's so modern." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, there was an article in New York Magazine, supposedly written by Roseanne, although it was too well written. Somebody had to clean it up, and she's talking about oh, she didn't get the credit for her show and. Matt Williams, who did get credit, did nothing. And, and people asked me about it. And, and I said, well, first of all, the name of the show is Roseanne. So how is she complaining that she's not getting credit for the show? It's named Roseanne. And I talked about how it takes a certain skill to just turn a stand-up act into an actual dynamic for a television series. And that Matt Williams did a lot and deserved the, the credit. And I also talked about how 
reprehensible a person she was to her writers. And this comes from firsthand knowledge from many of her writers. She didn't even want to know their names. They would have to come down to the stage with numbers. They had like numbers attached to them. Mm. Okay. That's how dehumanizing she was. So I wrote this article. Ah. And she had a blog at the time and somebody alerted her to the thing. And she just like tore into me. This is, you know, ass hat and this horrible hack and blah, blah, blah. And I didn't want to get into, you know, a debate with this woman, but she said how, um, you know, I was probably horrible to women writers. And I worked with like a number of women writers. We had women writers on, on all of our shows. We did a show called Almost Perfect with Nancy Travis. Uh, that was on CBS for two years. One of our co-creators was a woman. And I would say 60% of our staff were, were women. So the women who we had hired on, on the staff, like all emailed me like their rebuttal. So I put that on, you know, where they were saying, you know, I had just had a baby and can uh, let me go home early, you know, so that I could nurse the baby and, uh, you know, Ken was like a mentor and blah, 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 and everything. Uh, and then that pissed her off and that got like another, another rant. And the LA Times picked up on it. And so it, it kind of went viral, you know, and I was like, meh, she's, she's insane. She's insane. It's like, I didn't want to get into it for, you know, more than, than two or three blog posts because uh, why yeah she is who she is you know and then you know so she had you know the the people that follow her were like yeah yeah he's an asshole you know it's like you know the the blind leading the ignorant leading the right yeah the so that was my that was my feud with roseanne Ah, okay. I thought that was, uh, sometimes I think, oh, some of that stuff has got to be, uh, I know in the modern times, you know, feuds get made by PR people in order to keep people in the, in the forefront. But then Roseanne has a kind of this history, not kind of, she has a history of, of stirring up some dust. So right. I thought that was interesting. And again, I only wrote this piece because this article had come out, which was pure fiction, and a number of my readers asked me to comment. Sure. It, which happens a lot. I get a lot of my posts from people saying, what do you think about hacks? What do you think about Ted Lasso? What yeah. do you think about this? What do you think about this trend or that, you know? Um, I love hacks. That's a great show. And who doesn't? If you don't love... Ted Lasso, you're a joy stealer. I will say that over and over and over again. 
But even that show had to throw in some darkness. It was interesting when they when they did that for the second uh, the second half of uh, or the first half of this second season. I thought, wow, they really. It's, I know that people are complicated and people aren't always happy. And clearly, it was obvious in the beginning of that show that the the veneer was purposeful. You know, I knew that it was heading in that direction, but. Right. You know, you can't really make a show that's just <laughs> believe all the time. Right. Yeah. It's dark days upon us. Um, I read over, you know, September 11th happened and you put out a tribute every year to your friends who lost their lives. And, and that. And Lynn Angel. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. that's got to be the brutality of all of that, first of all. But even as a creative, as somebody who, who has great empathy. I don't think you can be a writer without great empathy to have to relive that every year and think about that stuff every year. And just to be in the moment of that, I just wanted to say that, you know, I saw that and my heart goes to you for that. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 That was so weird because that morning when that happened and, and I saw where one of the planes was, headed to Los Angeles. I said to my wife, you know, I bet we're going to find out that either we know somebody or it's somebody related to somebody we know that there'll be just some, somebody that we will know. And then the first names that they announced were David and Lynn Angel, you know, who, we knew and we're very close to. So, yeah. 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 And we've been back to see the memorial and, you know, see their, their names on it. I very tried to go to the memorial. That. If you go to New York, um, you know, if you go to the East coast, um, go see that in New York and go see the Vietnam, hmm. um, you know, turn a thing in uh, Washington, DC. You know, that that tribute is pretty amazing, too. It's it's a lot of emotion. I when I, I tried because I've been to New York so many times, I keep trying to go to the memorial and I just I start freaking out a couple blocks away. You know, it's just I went to the um, uh, I was in Hawaii and I went to the Pearl Harbor Museum uh-huh. and I I don't know what it is about this stuff. I just it. it it gets me so much. I ended up in a hysterical crying, calling my dad, just like, how do humans do this to each other? You know, it's, it's so surreal to me that all this time has gone by the, the centuries go by thousands of years go by and we still have learned nothing. It makes me crazy. Yeah. You know? Well, when you have people who, <laughs> who choose to get sick and die rather than take a vaccine for political reasons, you go, well, you know, stupidity is not extinct. Yeah. Or ignorance or, or the tribalism or any of that stuff. I mean, there's, there's so many layers as to what makes a person 
do that kind of stuff. It's it's bonkers. By the way, you were mentioning the the announcing for baseball. So Baltimore Orioles, which I had the um, vice president of the team on the show in my first year, but uh, Seattle Mariners. That's I grew up in Seattle. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. How old are you? I'm old. <laughs> <laughs> so whether or not you actually heard me calling Mariner games. I don't know. I was wondering that. When were you there? What years? I was there from uh, 92, 3, and 4. And then I came back and was there 10 and 11, 2010 and 11. I, but before I have kept you for, for quite a long time here, but we're going to edit this down to 11 minutes. That's right. right. I'm going to take out all this garbage. You're, you're the worst guest I've had, frankly. I don't. Just <laughs> so, so you know, we've been talking for seven and a half hours. And this is all <laughs> <laughs> that she's been able to keep. That's right. I whittled it down. Playwriting. <clears throat> your, when did you pivot into that? What made you decide? I mean, I, I suppose you could call every episode of a television show a mini play, considering. Well, certainly shows like Cheers and Frasier that were shot in front of a studio audience. I loved hearing the audience laughter. Mm -hmm. Uh, From the time I was a kid and read the book uh, Act One by Moss Hart, I was intrigued by playwriting and Neil Simon one of my idols. So I, I always loved comedy plays, a uh, thousand clowns by Herb Gardner. Um, and I kind of reached a point where I thought, you know what? I've written a lot for television. I really don't have anything more to prove in television. I want to write for the theater and I want to be able to write subjects that interest me and not, okay, what are the networks looking for this year? Okay, we want uh, sophisticated urban shows. We want rural shows. We want workplace comedies. It's like, I wanted to write what I wanted to write. And, um, and it's been very freeing. And look, the one thing that the playwright has that, TV writers and certainly screenwriters don't have is this power. You know, no one can change a word of, of my play without my permission. And if I'm unhappy with the production and what the director is doing or how it is cast, I can pull the play. I can say, then you can't show it. Sorry. No. Um, that's not so in, in movies. So I, I kind of like having, having that power, uh, where I can really protect my work. Yeah. And it's been, it's been really fun. It's been, it's been a fun ride. I've had productions around the world and, um, I've gotten a number of plays published it's 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 been a lot of fun it's certainly more of a hobby because you don't make money <laughs> as a playwright you really don't yeah that's why you'll see like a lot of promising playwrights in new york they'll write a few plays you know they get their mfas from yale or whatever and when they're 27 28 it's like you know 
come out to LA and write CSI Pittsburgh because there's money there. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, same with songwriting. It's, it's the creative arts, unfortunately, are losing the battle <laughs> for the creative. No, I know. I mean, novelists, I know, and playwrights, I know, successful uh, are teaching. You know, they, they have a day job. Now, if you're Janet Ivanovich, then, yeah, you make millions and you can have your own plane. But for most writers, same thing, you know, playwright. If you're Tony Kushner, um, you, you make a lot of money. But if you're, you know, just a, a normal person, you know, you may get your license fees and stuff, but you're not nearly going to make the kind of money that that you can make in television yeah it's a strange world we live in I, I get frustrated by that too that everybody wants to consume beauty but nobody wants to pay for it you know especially now with the internet yeah absolutely I mean, all that great porn that you used to have to pay for now it's just out there it's free I know it's crazy. Finally, my uh, foot slash toe jam fetish can be uh, realized. Finally, there's probably 17 websites. Yeah, I know it is quite. It is. It's a fun roulette to go onto Pornhub and type in just whatever occurs to you and see if there's a porn for it. And there's a porn Generally for that. There is. Yeah. Yeah. There's a yeah. porn for that. Is the name of my memoir. <laughs> <laughs> Eyebrow fetish. There you go. Oh, yeah. I'd be. That I've got a lot yeah. of eyebrow, yeah, for sure. Dead caterpillar wow, eyebrows are so hot. Yeah. <laughs> I love the sound they make when you rub them quickly. <laughs> yeah, thumb fetish. Yep, it's all well. That's been around since you know to go the old pie since, days. Since the beginning of thumbs, yeah, yeah that's right. Since hitchhikers were invented, since the first opposable thumb, there was a fetish. <laughs> Tell people how they might find you out in the world. Uh, you can find my podcast uh, on Apple and most places that have podcasts. Uh, it's on iHeart and TuneIn and Spotify and all those other places where you can go to the website. It's called Hollywood and Levine. Um, you can find my blog, which is called bykenlevine.com. Just go to Google and go Ken Levine blog and it'll take you to it. And uh, I'm on Twitter at Ken Levine, also on Instagram, Hollywood and Levine. Perfect. And that's how you, that's how you can, you can get. And if you want to license my plays, there's a website called KenLevinePlays.com. And you can go there. You can read samples of the, of my plays and whatever, or you can come to my house. I'm at my house usually a lot. <laughs> don't say Especially that you last, never... <laughs> the last year, year and a half i was at my house all the time the time yeah so yeah. people can send their uh amateur thumb porn to you to oh yeah you. oh man oh man <laughs> some of the stuff you're just going like who are these people the hitchhiker's guide to ecstasy there we go i like that idea <laughs> <laughs> uh, who are these people these are these are creatives. These are go-getters. These are, you know, people who aren't afraid to take risks. <laughs> what, the people who have eyebrow fetishes? Yes. 
No, they're the people. Well, they're the people that used to think, "Oh my God, I'm the only person in the world with an eyebrow fetish," and, and they're not. And then it turns out that there's twelve. Yeah, there was that TV show for a while about you know my curious fetish or whatever it was called, and there were people that there you know a guy married to his car or people that were sexually aroused by balloons. Okay, I, now that makes sense. It's all fascinating. Okay, now that now that makes sense. But a balloon the stuff. The other stuff is up. really weird, but yeah. balloons are really hot. The squeaky noise they make when you rub them together, and the fact that they can stick to the ceiling or make your hair stand up—all oh that. God. I got to take a cold shower. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm getting way too excited. Light a cigarette, a, but uh, but I pop the balloon. I know you've got there's so many girlfriends that way. I know. <laughs> Ken, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you for listening, everybody. Bye. Okay. Bye. Talk to you later. Bye. Rate and review Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. Bye. Bye.